Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Another day, another dollar. How the two of you guys doing on this fine October afternoon? RJ, you've had a traumatic day. I have had a traumatic day. It, first of all, it is a fine October afternoon. Fall has come to Houston in the form of 82-degree days, which are dry and, and sunny. So now this is, a, this is a good time to be in Houston, Texas. Mm. But yeah, I'm tired. Uh, up late watching uh, my Astros Go lose Nats. to your Nationals. Yeah, exactly. Your, your wife's Nationals, you bandwagon fan, because you went to bed early. But uh, that was brutal. And then got up at 4.30 to take my oldest son to the hospital to get his uh, broken nose surgically repaired which is a combination of, you know, just being there, getting up at 4.30 is tiring enough, but just the stress of um, going on a general anesthesia and being there when he's waking up and being like, is he ever going to wake up? Um, but he did wake up, and we got some very funny video, which we have to do, of course. And uh, now he's, <laughs> he begged me. He's like, he's like, Dad, two things. You need to take video, and two, do not give me my, my phone, because if you do, I will text uh, out really stupid things to my friends. Yeah. Um, but he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's home convalescing. So we're we're all good, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sleep well tonight. And thank God, no World Series game, so I can go to bed on time. Mm. Go Nats! Right. Yep. <laughs> all right, Sarah, what's going on in your world? Oh, things are good. It is fall, fall for Houston. So everybody's pulling out their skinny jeans and their riding boots and their giant <laughs> earrings. Uh, just kidding. We never put those away. Um, yeah. No, it's a. Uh, it is. I mean, you forget how hot it is and how awful it is until it gets cooler. Like it's, you're like, oh my gosh, like that was like affecting my mood and the general mood of the people I love. Yes. Um, until so. it's slightly less hot. It's, yeah. It just has to be a, just a little bit less. Like when it's hot. 92, you're like, this is a miracle. Incredible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Anyway, the weather's so interesting. So I'm yes. glad we gave it a moment. Mm. <laughs> Well, let me ask the two of you a question. Um, Can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone goofed off at work as much as you do? (laughs) 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 Apparently that's an old Jay Leno joke uh, that Tim Kreider highlights in this first piece that we're talking about. The art of not doing art, procrastination as vocation. This appeared on Medium. And this is Tim Kreider, who we've uh, drawn so much from. Uh, It's like an ode. Oh, the seductive and terrible lure of whatever you're not supposed to be doing, whomever you're not supposed to be with, wherever you currently are not. Um, he he has a, someone who's approaching who just turned 50. He says, as the things I'm officially supposed to be doing have gotten bigger and more ambitious, so too have the massive secret time-wasting projects. My illustrated edition of Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon script, for instance. I guess these are what normal people would call hobbies. And, of course, uh, anyone with an internet access knows the the dissociated horror of watching yourself click through an infinite feed of forgettable crap as the hours and days evaporate and the great books go unread. 
Mark Twain, who, between writing books, patented a garment fastener like a bra strap, a history trivia game, and a self-adhering scrapbook, wrote that work consists of whatever a body is obliged to do, and play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. Mm. Uh, The reason people pay you to do things in principle is that they're hard, boring things you otherwise wouldn't do. The luckiest people are those who get paid for doing something they'd secretly be doing anyway. And yet, by some ineradicable glitch of human nature, as soon as someone pays you for something, it turns into a chore as dreary as algebra homework. What is it we're really doing on this planet? The stuff we're supposed to be doing or all the stuff we do instead? (laughs) What a great question. If you wanted to get all adolescently existential about it, you could argue that it's all. The energy and insurance industries, novels and operas, prosthetics and space probes, conquests and coups, it's all procrastination. And what are we all avoiding? There really is something illicit, sinful, his word, about procrastination, and not just because you're filching a few minutes from your employer. It has the same perverse thrill of smoking cigars, drinking whiskey, and other more overtly self-destructive vices. Instead of heedlessly endangering your health, you are knowingly squandering time, a commodity more irreplaceable than uranium. Beneath the frivolous subject of procrastination is the dreadful subtext of time passing, deadlines approaching, things left undone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Do you guys procrastinate? I mean, I think everybody procrastinates. Mm, that's Jay Leno's joke, I suppose. Yeah. Um, well, what, what struck you then about his procrastination observations? Honestly, I mean, this, and I, you know, we need to check our privilege, okay? Um, but honestly, what occurred to me was in doing this really new ministry, um, trying to think about different ways we're going to do it, different things we're going to do. I have noticed that I get really mad when I do things because I think I have to do them or I'm supposed to do them. And they're not things that bring me joy. Hmm. Um, and trying to parse that out. It's been the first time in my life I've um, probably had the, frankly, the vocational ability to do that. But, but it also has made me wonder about other parts of my life where I feel obligated to do something that I have no desire to do and then become mad at it and then become kind of a hellish person to be married to or, you know, to be mothered by. Um, so I don't know. That was the first thing that kind of stuck out at me. Dave, it goes to so many questions I feel like you ask about anticulosity where it's like, like I was with a friend at clergy conference this week and she was doing a whole presentation about managing your inbox and my inbox has 5,000 emails in it. Um, no big deal. No big deal. Down from eight. Thank you. But, um, down from eight, like as a few months ago. So it's probably back up. Anyway, she was giving me like all her tips and I was like, well, my real problem is like that I'm on social media too much, which we all know. We all know this about me. And she was like, and I've heard this before. It was helpful to hear again. You know, basically you've trained this pattern in your brain. You have to retrain it. You've got to do something else. You can't just say, don't do it. You have to do something else. So then this morning I was at the doctor's office and I was like, okay, retrain my brain, retrain my brain. I'm like, I'll clean out all my old text messages and my old email. And then I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know. It just was like. What a waste of time. I know. Like I would much rather scroll through Facebook and look at picture, pictures of people's babies. Um, mm. Yeah. It's just, it's, I, I don't know. I, we're always trying to optimize the broken. I don't know. 
optimize. Wow, that's a good phrase. I think that's true. There's a mm-hmm. um, uh, this this idea though that when something is when you're paid to do something, or your the second your hobby becomes monetizable, or you have to monetize it, is the second it becomes less fun. Um, and how do we, as people who are kind of trying to do something that you know uh, is should be approach freedom in some way? How do you um, yet you also have to pay bills? How do you go about this? And the the law is certainly what he's talking about when it comes to what you are obliged to do, what you what what for what you are rewarded with money, and uh, the what you're procrastinating. And in fact, like what he is seems to be suggesting is that the stuff that you're uh, you're doing instead of what you should be doing is actually often the fruit, good fruit in your life. It makes me laugh because. There have been seasons in um, our ministry when I've done a lot more at my husband's church, at Josh's church, um, and seasons when I haven't. But when I'm in one where I am, you know, if I'm teaching Sunday school or I'm preaching or doing something like that, people will say, like, do they, are you, not people in the church, but people outside the church will always sort of be like, are they, sorry, are you on staff at Holy Spirit? Like, are they paying you to be at Holy Spirit? And I'm always like, I'm not looking to hate my husband. <laughs> If you got paid, stay married. I I will not be paid to do this work because then I will have to hate him. So (laughs) it's just funny. Yeah. RJ, what do you think? My first thought was I'm pretty sure that Tim Crider doesn't have kids. You know, it seemed like he had a lot of free time. And uh, I, I feel like. Oh, this is gonna sound a little dark, but I feel like most of my life, and maybe it's just it's just the season I'm in right now. I feel like most of what I do is stuff that I should do. You mm. know, I'm constantly moving between um, work and a lot of my work that I enjoy, and some of it I've learned to enjoy. You mm-hmm. know, but I think I've gotten good at recognizing, like, hey, just because I don't think I'm gonna like to do something, I might actually like it if I love it and I put myself into it, and I keep sort of um, and I focus on the fact that um, you know who I serve, who I'm serving, mm. you know, and that, and that Jesus, uh, Jesus doesn't call me to be sort of important and happy all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. okay. It's okay to be unimportant and conflicted. Um, but, uh, yeah. So going between work and then, you know, trying to be as helpful with the kids as I possibly can. And then the really irresponsible thing that I do most often probably is just stay up too late. Like mm. after everyone has gone to bed, mm. you know, after Jamie has fallen asleep with the baby and uh, maybe Jackson is up doing homework and Spencer's off doing God knows what, you know. Um, Fortnite. A couple hours. Yeah, exactly. Then I can, you know, the sort of uh, 11 to 1 shift or something like that mm. um, because everyone in my house goes to bed so late. And I'm, I'm, not produ- I'm not producing anything meaningful in those two hours, I'll tell you right now. It's like I'm basically watching all the TV that I know Jamie won't want to watch, like Handmaid's Tale. You know, like oh. if, you know, if she walks in the room and I'm watching that show, she's like, turn it off immediately. And I'm like, why do I need to watch horrible, depressing television? But I guess I do. Um, but uh, so, I, so I don't know. I'm both sides of the fence. But I, I, I'm a little jealous of Tim Kreider. He seems to have a lot of, and I love his writing. I love, what's the yellow book? We Learn his, Nothing. We Learn Nothing. I love We Learn Nothing. It's so good. Um, and I don't, I'm not really jealous of him because I love my family, but he seems to have a lot of time. Um, anyway, I, uh, we've, we've never referenced her on this podcast before, but Jen Hatmaker is sort of like another, you know, we'll, 
we'll get to another queen of Protestantism, but she's certainly one here in Texas. She's married to a, a pastor, and they have a very big family. And um, I remember one time I read that she's, she's, in, she's incredibly funny. And she wrote that, like, every night she tries to sell her, she tries to tell herself she's going to go to bed early. You know, oh, like, yeah, she's no. like, I'm going to get the kids down where it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then she gets everybody in bed, and at, like, 1130, she's like, I'm the queen of the universe. Yes. <laughs> just, like, stays up till 2 a.m. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's exactly definitely right. a thing. And and a, especially in a culture that really enshrines productivity as the only, as the, its greatest value. And this is bad is what I say in the, the seculosity, then procrastination is uh, totally a moral category. It's a sin. It is sin. You're not just sinning against uh, time. You're sinning against uh, the culture, against yourself even, because you're the only one who is paying that cost. Uh, I, f- I find it to be very interesting. I'm not, I, I don't find that I have a procrastination problem, but I do have a doing other things instead of what I'm supposed to be doing problem. So maybe it is procrastination, but it's like I, I put in something, I do something productive. I, I do these massive time wasting projects, which even with three children, I somehow find time to learn everything I could possibly learn about, uh, you know, uh, Elvis Costello or something like that. It, it's not, it, nothing about it is, is urgent and yet it is thoroughly absorbing and because there's no result in mind there's no product uh, outside of maybe another uh, hobby podcast then I do tend to enjoy it so it's it's good it's interesting but I mean talk about let's let's go from uh, what you do with with your non-parenting time to what you do with your parenting time the point which is a wonderful um, journal and magazine uh, online and site Agnes Collard wrote something called parenting in panic and this this sort of half-heartedly goes out to uh, someone we love with our whole hearts which is Ethan and Hannah Richardson Ethan who edits the Mockingbird magazine and has been on staff forever they just had their first child uh, yesterday. David Keen Richardson. So, uh, Ethan, uh, you should now stop listening after you've heard your name because this article is kind of depressing. But here it is, Parenting in Panic. It is hard to speak about parenting without at the same time seeking validation as a parent. Every story about parenting has to do double duty as a story about how I am such a good parent. Even my confessions of bad parenting are carefully calculated to make you think I am actually a great parent. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself. Parenting has a lie built right into its name. We should have called it childing, because that's who's in charge. For about a decade, I had the status in my group of friends as the sleep whisperer. Both of my first two children slept on their own without issues from day one. Then my third arrived. That, quote, baby is now six, and the most recent time he came to my bed to sleep was last night. It turns out that we had all mislocated the source of the sleep talent. Notice how much we emphasize precisely those aspects of parenting that are farthest from the child's direct control, such as pregnancy and baby care, protection from dangerous predators, and school choice. Respectable literature avoids the topic of parenting. Even the exceptions, like Nausgaard and Ferrante, focus more on the parent's experience of the child than on child raising proper. Is that because they know the real action lies elsewhere in the child rising? When you're a parent, There's a story you are deeply invested in. 
it's not your story, and you're not going to get to know how it turns out, at least not unless you're very unlucky. Pretending one controls the story with one's, quote, parenting choices is one coping strategy. Convincing oneself that the story is already written in the genetic stars is another. The truth is the story is not yet written. You care tremendously how it goes, and you don't get to write it, which is all to say the panic is justified. Oh my God. It's wow. So good. It's some beautiful writing, it's I think. It's so good. Um, Last night, uh, I was putting Andy to bed, and you know, we were watching the same baseball game. Uh, and she said to me, as she does probably once a week, I just need you to stay with me. You can't go downstairs. <laughs> and, and I had like, all these big plans for getting the kitchen clean and getting lunches made. And, you know, the queen of the universe. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And I was like, Oh, I'm just going to close my eyes for a minute, you know? And, um, that was at eight and I woke up at 10 30 baseball game still going, you know, and I have a sweaty five-year-old laying on me. Um, and I, I just love what this piece says about how we're not really in charge. And, and also like, Honestly, some of the least happy parents I know are the ones who think that they are, mm. you know, that they've got some formula. And God bless them if they got a child that, like, falls in the line. That's great. But, you know, then the second one ends up in a rehab. And they're like, I don't know what I had, a formula, you know. And they're and they're mad as hell as that, at that kid. And it's just like, yeah, it's not anything that it feels like we have a lot of control over. I, I keep thinking about, I think I mentioned this actually because RJ and I were at our, our diocesan clergy conference together this week. I think I mentioned this to him, but I happened to be in a prayer group with, um, you well, Dave, you know Sasha Hines, mm-hmm. and she's a psychologist and has worked with mothers and children before. And she said something that has, I, it has wrecked me and stayed with me. She said, I think there has to be something to the fact that we are all at this age. You know, old people don't talk about their childhoods anymore, right? You get real happy when you're old. There's a lot of scientific evidence about it. We are still grappling with our childhoods in our 30s and 40s. And she says there has to be something to the fact that God made us to be grappling with our childhoods at the same time as our children are in the midst of theirs. And I just, I can't stop thinking about that. Both that that is how we're created and that she said there has to be something to the fact that God created us that way. Um, And and I, as someone who wishes I could go back and do three, four, and five over with my firstborn, I I try to take a lot of rest in that. Because I do think one of the worst things we can do as parents is have deep regret about what we did. Don't get me wrong. You've done something wrong and should apologize to your child for it. But deep regret about what we did and then not, and so much so that parenting becomes this whole internal strife, struggle thing that then is all about you and not about your kid. And then you you really do miss their childhood, you know? So the sooner you can like enjoy your forgiveness, know you're not in control, like the, the more fun I think it is a parent. I don't know, RJ, mm. you're like the best parent I know. Come on. <laughs> Speak about it. Come on, let's get Jamie on. I, yeah, I... What am I supposed to say about this? I don't know. I'm Well, first of all, let me say I'm definitely still grappling with my, uh, my own childhood, you know, and my parenting. And I think I talked about it around the time that my father passed away kind mm-hmm. of unexpectedly just about a year ago, you know, that one of the things that came out of that, and I've always said this to my kids, was um, 
you know what, I was really thinking about this a lot around the time he died, but that every child, maybe, and I'm only, I'm only a man and I, and I had a troubled relationship with my father. My mother and I are, are better, but I said, you know, I think every, well, well, what I needed from my dad was I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm here for you. And I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I got about one and a half of those things, yeah. maybe. And so my reaction to my dad dying was just saying to my kids again, all of those things, and especially the I'm sorry, like that if I ever have anything to apologize for, I stand ready to do that. Mm-hmm. And I said that through tears and they were both like, dad, we get it. We're a little freaked out. Go, go. Okay. Jeez, you said this enough. You know? Drink a white claw. Fre- <laughs> yeah, seriously. Freaking us out. Um, <laughs> But I don't, you know, there are things that have happened in the course of my life that I, I kind of, that were hard that I wish I hadn't. Like leaving New York was really hard and coming to Houston. I think it was also the right thing. I don't know if I, if it's a regret that I have because I feel like it was something that was beyond my control. Um, so I don't know if I, it sounds weird to say, I'm trying to think of like big regrets I have in my, in my parenting. I don't, I don't know. I mean, let it be said too, I feel like so far, <laughs> knock on wood a lot, things have gone okay. I do think, you know, one of our sons is kind of right in the middle of, as we call it around here, the puberty. You know, mm-hmm. he's got the puberty pretty hard and he's gone from being someone who was lovely and, and bright and happy and risk-taking and cheerful and just a little more sullen and withdrawn, you know? Sure. Um, but I've also done a fair amount of mindfulness work, which I think, you know, you guys have also done mm-hmm. and, and realizing that like, just because you feel one way right now doesn't mean you're going to feel this way in five minutes or an hour from now or tomorrow and that emotions come and go. And I think that's been helpful in parenting to recognize that like seasons come and go, you know, even with our three-year-old, like he is in a lovely phase right now, but in our experience, kids that age have like a lovely three months and then they're just monsters for three months. And then it's, it's three months on, three months off, three months on, three months off. Um, and that, uh, it's also sort of cyclical that I do feel like my, the biggest thing I can do as a parent is not to get too wrapped up in it, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of let it be a little bit and like, and just have faith, you know, not to be absent or not care. Cause you, that's, that's the dance for me. Like how much how, to care and not to care. Someone sure. once said, you know, isn't that the, the mag, how do I care and yet let it also be, and find that space between like knowing when I really need to get to my kids about like doing their homework versus just like letting it go. Um, there's a mom I know who one of her older children really went through some stuff, like really serious mental illness um, and, and had to, you know, do a lot of work on, um, on themselves and as a family. But then it was kind of amazing to talk to her on the other side of that experience. You know, she, she told me how she was sitting around with a bunch of moms talking about their younger children who were then getting into high school and they were talking about colleges. And at some point, this mom that I know said, well, you know, my, my kids just, you know, at the end of the day, they're just going to be who they're going to be and go where they're going to go. And all the other moms freaked out. They're like, yeah. what are you taught? That's insane. Yeah. But, um, but she had this level of confidence that things were going to be okay because of the difficulty that she had been been through and the work that she had put in, yeah. you know, on herself and on her family. I mean, we, we would say that I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the panic that uh, Collard describes, it was an opportunity for faith. I mean, it's... Yeah. Yes, and, yes uh, but, absolutely. But ripping the charade to pieces that the, the art of parenting is really just uh, a, a, such a small... Um, corner of what it actually of, of life with children is because it's the stuff that you can quote unquote control but actually that the truth is that 
almost nothing about it almost nothing. is in your control. And that's a very scary thing to hear as a young parent. And yet the practice of getting used to the panic and do you have any resources for confronting the fact that life really is not in your control? And you can, you can pretend that it is a lot, I think, a bit easier when it's just yourself rather than uh, this sort of living, I don't know, um, in, uh, you know, a mini you, and and the, made the overinvestment that we certainly have in our kids. That, that we, you know, the the seculosity of parenting stuff is, is a factor here. She she does mention in the piece about you know free range parents in the 1970s and how did they not deal with the panic of just life being out of your control and um, and it it, it might even be like a more measure of the faithlessness that we're experiencing that people are that much more clamped down on their kids and therefore creating, you know, all the various problems associated with the helicopter movement. Um, I, I just think, I really think that we, I think that we're so terrified right now. It's interesting. I heard David Peters and we talked about David Peters piece. Um, he was the guy that wrote the piece about accidentally killing someone when he was in college and David's a veteran. And I heard him talking about sort of how everybody has PTSD right now. Um, and what, what PTSD often does to us, he used the example of those stretchy balls is we want our world to get smaller and smaller and smaller and safer and safer and safer. And there's so that impulse in parenting and, um, and I really think the only way, and I'm not giving advice, it is the only way I've been able to manage that anxiety is that I feel like you they have to know they can come to you if they're, if they need something, they just have to know you're there and they have to know that you just love them so much. I mean, probably once a week, I will remember to say to both of my children and they're small, they're eight and five. I don't, teenagers should probably bristle at this, but I just grab their little faces and put them in mind. And I say, I can't believe of all the babies in the whole wide world. God gave you to me, you know, cause it's like, I want you to know that, um, that you're so precious and that this home is a place of rest and love for you. Um, and yet there's this part of me that wants to say in structure too, we're very strong. You know, it's like we always, <laughs> but it's like, why don't, but, but you know, what matters is that they feel like um, what matters is not that they feel safe out in the world. What matters is that they feel safe and loved and cared for at home in a way that's not just like physical safety and not just like, Oh my God, what did they see on the internet safety? But it's like true rest. Mm. Um, but there's not like a formula for that. You know what I mean? Cause mm -hmm. we're broken people, parenting, broken people. I mean, there's not a formula for that. Optimizing just, the broken. <laughs> yeah. It's also just, yeah. It, I had a moment recently when I was a little, panicked about one of my kids. Well, I mean, today I was panicked when like, you know, at a children's hospital, they take you into recovery as soon as your child is out of surgery, which means they're still basically knocked out. And then oh, to watch your son come gosh. to and like his yeah. eyes open darting around, it was, it was a freaky situation, but yeah. um, I'm glad that's over. But I was worried about one of my kids. And then my, you know, we talked about surprise a couple weeks ago. And then my three-year-old who has just been singing at home all of the chapel songs that he sings at preschool oh. started singing, um, you know, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Just started singing that out of the blue. And I was like, wait, yeah, God is good to my kids. And God is going to be good to my kids. And I, it's not up to me to be 100% responsible for that goodness because I can't be. Mm. Um, and that, that chased away some of that 
that panic. It was kind of mm-hmm. an amazing, I, I was very thankful. So it was, it was uh, yeah, God using one of my kids to speak peace into my life about another one of my kids. Wow. Oh, I love when they, I say it enough to my kids that they'll say it to me now, but it, I'll, whenever I hear them saying, I'll say, ooh, you woke up with a song in your heart this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll say it and they're like, I woke up with a song in my heart this morning. I'm like, all right. When I sing in the morning, my wife tells me to stop immediately. Yes. Well, it's not as cute. I haven't had my coffee yet. Stop yeah. that. Well, it's not as cute. You know, in, in the very same publication in The Point, um, Wesley Hill, the theologian, had written something about uh, Christians and children. And he was talking especially about single people with uh, who decide not to have children. And he quotes Rodney Clapp, says, the married Christian ultimately should trust that his or her survival is guaranteed in the resurrection. But the single Christian ultimately must trust in the resurrection. Uh, Wesley goes on to say, the married, after all, can fall back on the passage of the family name to children and on being remembered by children. Mm. But singles mount the high wire of faith without the net of children and their memory. If singles live on, it will be because there is a resurrection. And if they are remembered, they will be remembered by the family called church. The early Christians, yeah, this is a great piece. The, Come on now. The early Christians thought that something shifted with parents and children after Jesus rose from the dead. In a sort of a, in a Jewish context, children would have been the future of the nation of Israel and God's work in the world. Um, with some qualification, he writes, it has, the church has never quite lost its sense that there's now a clear way to appreciate children without pinning all your hope for the future on them. Children after Christ are not simply to be seen as links in a generational chain that will guarantee the church's future flourishing, but instead are gratuitous gifts. Then he quotes Stanley Hauervoss, who said, the theologian, who says, Christians do not place their hope in their children, but rather their children are a sign of their hope, in spite of the considerable evidence to the contrary that God has not abandoned this world. They are gratuitous gifts instead of a means to a future end. Um, and I just, I think it should, every time we talk about parenting, I'm always cognizant that there's a lot of people that don't have kids. And Absolutely. some would, would love to have kids. Some are very glad that they don't. But when it comes to faith, you, you almost, um, you know, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul didn't have children. And it's Jesus, you know, do we need to even say, Da Vinci Code notwithstanding, Jesus didn't have any kids. And faith is, uh, there's almost like a, a nakedness about that, um, where the, the, the immortality, that, or the fallback almost of that is taken away. And uh, you're on the high, I love how he says, the higher wire act of faith. And yet the truth is that our children are not our means to being immortality, to being remembered right. in a certain way. They are simply gratuitous gifts from God that can be enjoyed um, and to be stewarded, but really to be enjoyed and to sort of uh, be loved, as you say, Sarah. Isn't that a beautiful mm. picture? I love that. Mm. I have several single friends who listen who don't plan on having children. So, hey, guys, shout out. <laughs> Yeah, and hey, we I, love I'm you. hoping for a much more concrete, you know, life after death than just remembrance. That that's that's not enough. I, I, I don't want to just be remembered. I want there to be more than being. Remembered. I mean, do you just right. think about how you remember like certain members of your family, and you're like, uh, I don't yeah, want exactly. that. To be <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I want to be forgotten. I want to be forgotten. I'm happy for remembered some only people by to the Lord. Me. Yeah, I don't. Was it von Zinzendorf? Uh, Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. <laughs> so Ooh, great... that's good. You didn't even see, you didn't know that even. No, I love that. Yeah, of course it's. What's, it's what he's remembered for, ironically. 
but but it's such a good line. So good. Well, speaking of people being remembered and being talked about, our own Sarah Condon weighed in, uh, dipped her oar into the fray of online Mm. activity. This time, uh, uh, you wrote a piece for Mockingbird, a wonderful piece called We All Get to Go Home with Beth Moore and Jesus. Um, Sarah, I'll read a little bit of it, but then I want to hear from you. Uh, uh, And I'll set this up for us. There's a clip that came out this week where a prominent pastor uh, slash embarrassing uncle at Thanksgiving dinner table, um, and you can look up who it is, um, said that Beth... We're not going to say his name. <laughs> well, I mean, this guy is just par for the, no, par for the course. It's fine. Um, he said, said that Beth Moore, the very prominent um, evangelical preacher, teacher, Bible study leader, she's become a bit of a Twitter personality... Um, She's she's kind of uh, iconic right now. He said that when when just mentioned her, they were playing some game with him where they mentioned her name, and the first things that came to mind was "Go home." Um, as Sarah, you say, Beth Moore. For those of you who do not have Texas passports, sits in one of those unique places in the more conservative corners of the church. On the official record, she is a teacher and leader in women's ministries, but in real life, she is the queen of Protestant church world, or at least evangelical Protestant church world. She fills stadiums for her Bible studies. She is a prolific writer, and let's just name it: whether she is willing to own it or not, Beth Moore is an anointed preacher. Um. Now, Sarah, uh, I'm the, I'm not putting words in your mouth, I guess, since you wrote all this, but you you use this as a springboard to talk about what it's like to be a woman in ministry, dealing with people who don't believe that you should be there or in the position that you're in. Mm-hmm. And what sh- one of the things that struck me before I open it up to you guys, you, you wrote that one of the things you do when confronted with resistance, and while of course I don't have to deal with uh, that uh, form of resistance, we all deal with some form of um, uh, people not wanting us to be there or not acknowledging. I'm, I'm a person who's not ordained you know, at plays one on TV sometimes, so I can, I can find a way in. But you say that the, one of the things you do in these situations is you remember your death. We're, mm-hmm. we're sort of in get-in-the-pool territory for long-time listeners. Um, she, you said, it is my quiet time with the Lord, if you will. I remember that women in their 30s die all the time. By your mm-hmm. 40s, that number goes up. And if pastoral ministry has taught me anything, by your 50s, you have probably started to lose friends. Cancer, car accidents, thinking uh, you can still do a backhand spring uh, can, <laughs> can all get you like a thief in the knife. That's funny. Uh, so with the time I've been given, I remind myself that I do not have time to waste. I have children to raise. I have a husband to love. I have a gospel to preach. That fills up exactly 100% of my schedule, and I have zero slots for nonsense. I guess, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of how procrastination fits into this. I was going to say, except for your Facebook feed. Except for your Facebook and your Twitter Except feed. for your Facebook so, feed and your Twitter feed. The jury's still out. We don't know. Remember, we're in the 1920s of cigarettes. I have a light cough. <laughs> I have a light cough. I was, this is you, Sarah, again. I was raised to believe that if God is calling me into something, I best pray about it and answer and then get to work. I have to keep my head down and my eyes focused on the cross. The world is a haunted place gripped by the power of sin and disease with an epidemic of lonely lostness. There are so many people who need to hear the gospel and to know that the love of Jesus Christ is for them. And for reasons only the Lord knows, I have been called to help. 
But I know that my God is eternal and that his calling on my life and the lives of my fellow anointed sisters will outlast anyone telling us to go home. Besides, the joke's on them. We will all go home to Jesus thanks to the redemption of the cross. If those fellas think Beth Moore is annoying now, just wait until they get to spend eternity with her. <laughs> I mean, that was fun to write. Um, it's funny. I um, have gotten a really positive response, but I got a very corrective response uh, this morning. Um Reminding I'm sorry, me. I couldn't resist, Sarah. I'm yeah, sorry. Was RJ, I, had, I, had, I had to say it. It was RJ. Um, reminding me of how conservative Beth Moore is. Like, I forgot. I mean, please. Like, I forgot. Um, where she stands on this issue and where she stands on that issue. And I just find it ironic that, you know, that you're, you're choosing to raise up this woman in a conversation about ordained women. And I was like, first of all, thank you for your opinion, sir. It's so funny that you're correcting me about how I can feel about a fellow woman in the ministry as a progressive man. I'm here for this version of feminism. And by here for it, I mean, please stop talking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, Sorry. I just, it was such an interesting, you know, like, it was, it was so interesting to me because it was like, on a certain level, aren't you doing exactly what I'm writing against? And you think you're such an advocate because you're speaking for me. Like, it just is so, it's such a fascinating kind of minefield to navigate. Um, and I, you know, I wrote the piece because <laughs> I love mainline Protestantism um, because a piece that came like a year ago about fifth century women being ordained bishops is now circulating on my newsfeed. And from some, from some fellow clergy. And I just, um, I, for me, it was such a Holy Spirit thing that these two things were being raised up at the same time because, because this man in so many ways is really calling and demanding that Beth Moore justify herself or that the people who love her and love her gospel message justify themselves. And on the other hand, um, you know, the, the church I tend to inhabit more is saying, Oh, but you have to be okay with ordained women. Cause it turns out we've got evidence that in the fifth century women were ordained. And it's like, none of this is the justification that we get through the cross. And that is the only justification that matters. Um, and Beth Moore, conservative or not, knows that. You know what I mean? Lives in that space, inhabits that. That's definitely been her response to this. But um, I get asked a lot. I got asked by that sweet, adorable, oh, my word, they should start a band. They're so cute. Group of young people from um, Westminster Seminary who were at 1517 with Dave and I this weekend. I got asked this very question about, like, how, because they're from certainly a more conservative world. They don't have ordained women. And you know, how I manage it. And it, I, in so many ways, I feel like this piece came out of that conversation with them because I, cause I was like, I don't, I just don't have time. I literally don't have time. And you know what I count on so much. And I can almost not say this. I count so much on people like RJ on people. And Dave, I include you in this, but I think a lot about my clergy brothers, people like Aaron Zimmerman, people like my husband who like, I'm too busy running to catch up as an ordained woman. And they're the ones standing in the gap, turning around and saying, this is why we need ordained women. Like, this is why it's important to have Sarah's voice at the table. And, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just too damn busy to try to defend myself. I got work to do, but I feel like those boys, they got a little, I mean, I have a friend that has said recently to me, um, that 
that when she walks into a room with a caller, she loses 50% of her political capital automatically. And I think that's really, that's true. That's fair. Um, and I think some of the guys just have a little bit more time on their hands and they can turn around and say, this is why we need ordained women. So anyway, I'm grateful for y'all in the midst of this conversation too. It's, I mean, it's a little bit like how you were able to stick up, say that, write that amazing thing about boys recently. I mean, like what you're saying is that they can be advocates for you and it's, 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 it's much more powerful even when yeah. you are um, not, it's not a self-seeking, it's not a self-seeking thing. It's like, um, yeah. I'm always struck by um, the one of the things that really got me about what you said is that like the I feel like um, in a lot of ways you know we're just confronted with study after study about declining levels of belief and people not going to church and of course you know seculosity and all that but you want to say like we need all the help we can get. There's bigger fish to fry, or I know that there are essential issues for certain people and non-essential for others. And I don't even really know how to navigate that quite outside of the fact that... Um, <laughs> Me either, Dave, and I'm ordained. I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's like, let's get on with it. There's so many hurting people out there, you know? That, yes. That's what I loved about your... Your, your focus is on the sufferer uh, yeah. in not on yourself. And I mean, I just, I, well, cause it's such murky territory. I mean, so Josh and I were talking about this last night. It's such murky territory as women because there are things, there are decisions he's made in his church that are so thoughtful and he's taken the time to do them in the right way. And as a woman, when I hear him process them, I'm like, that's so interesting. Cause I would have lit all that on fire ASAP. Um, because I would have thought it was all about me and my authority and their, their inability to respond to my authority. Cause I'm a woman. I mean, it's in, in that is definitely as an ordained woman, something I have to, I have to keep that tendency in check because it's actually not all about me. I'm actually not the lead character in the novel of everyone's lives, right? Everyone is actually carrying their own profound suffering into any given, room or conversation that I walk into. And so, um, anyway, it's, it's a, that it is very important that when we have any conversation about ministry, that we're talking about suffering people and not about our own stuff that can really be worked out in a therapist's office, you know, Hmm. Arge. Sarah, when you were talking about people asking you to justify your ministry, I just thought about the, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus. People, By whose authority do you do these things, you know? And he didn't answer. He's like, you tell me, you know, uh, was John from heaven or John's authority from heaven or men? And they didn't want to answer because it wasn't um, on some, it wasn't an honest question Mm. on some level. And it it wasn't an open question. Right. It was a, it was, it was was like, well, let me, let me shut you down. And then also I'm just, you know, reminded that when you read the New Testament uh, and read the book of Acts, especially, you know, God kind of does things his own way. You know, there are conversions, there's the Holy Spirit falling, there are baptisms, you know, and, and we kind of have, at least in the Episcopal Church and more liturgical traditions, you know, our, our, our practices for kind of understanding those things like confirmation, like baptism. Um, but it doesn't happen in the same order every time. You know, it's totally different. Sometimes the Holy Spirit falls first on people, and they're like, "Well, I guess we got to baptize them." They're they're speaking in tongues, you know, right. and like performing miracles. Maybe we should baptize them. 
and sometimes uh, they get baptized and then it falls, and sometimes uh, whole families are baptized, including children, presumably, and sometimes it's, it's people who have, you know, it's believer's baptism, and it's just like, um, we need to be careful about telling God how he's going to work. Right. You know, and, and, and more like uh, recognize, you know, sort of try to keep up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when you read Acts, that's what's happening. Like the apostles are trying to keep up with what God is doing. That's what happens in, in Acts 15 when Paul goes to Jerusalem. You know, and they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, hey, let me just tell you what God's been doing out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and to their credit, you know, James and Peter were like, okay. You know, just uh, don't eat any strangled animals, <laughs> you know, whatever that means. <laughs> and Paul's like, That's no problem, I got it. symbolic I... for women in ministry is the strangled oh, animals. <laughs> okay, well then forget everything I said. Forget everything I said. You know what? And I want to say his name because I want to speak a word of grace to him. The man's name was John MacArthur. And I frankly, and he said it, I, I don't know if there was a video clip. I just heard the audio. Mm. But he said, or somebody said, when they said, we're going to do a word association, which is like trouble waters for anybody with a punchy personality, present company included. And and he said, I feel like I'm being set up. And he was. I mean, to say, give a one word answer. So there's no space for him to thoughtfully say you know, this is what Paul wrote to Timothy and I really struggle with it. And, you know, my wife loves Beth more or like, I'm so thankful for what she's done in the women's ministries in my church. But like, you know, I do try to coalesce it. with. There was no space for that man to say any of those things. He just had to say something bad, you know? And so I, I I hear you. I mean, I think that, I think that's just worth naming. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a generous Spirit, we've just heard uh, aired on the podcast, and that's the, the sort of spirit I'm talking about. I wish I, ha- I wish I had it, Sarah. That's that's beautiful to hear you, you actually have it say when that. You need it, you know. So perhaps that's uh, because I mean, sometimes maybe he was saying go home because you need to take a rest, and he was really saying, you know, the truth is you're working too hard, and God wants you to rest in His Holy Spirit. We're worried, that. and I just have a feeling yeah. that's not what he meant. But you know, no, I know it's not. But but he there was no room for him to say something. But I'm cut, I mean, yeah I'm cut to the core actually by that you, what you have just evinced is a, is a biblically Christian <laughs> I think uh, uh, interpretation of events and I'm grateful I'm mm-hmm. I'm uh, thank you. Well, she's channeling I guess I channeling Dolly Parton because if you don't know there's this amazing podcast for Dolly Parton's RJ. America out there and episode two has something exactly like what Sarah Condon just mm-hmm. did so. Uh, Go ever if you're a podcaster, listen to Dolly Parton's America. It is unbelievably good. So don't spoil anything. Well, we also, of course, this uh, weekend in the lectionary in the Episcopal Church, we have the parable of the um, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is such a mm. uh, you know stop you in your tracks. Even all these years later, a kind of uh, parable about. Um, the, the, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this, this absolutely shocking, um, in fact, quite frightening, uh, you know, ultimately incredibly hopeful message that um, the 
the tax collector, the villain in the story, the true oppressor in the story goes home justified because he evinces uh, something akin to humility. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, maybe it sometimes feels like life is one, as we talked about with parenting and even procrastination, life is one long, I think my father said it, life is one long assault on your sense of control. <laughs> and, yeah. and that, uh, you know, that, to cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, is um, actually a place of, you know, future, you know, uh, hope, mm-hmm. uh, love, uh, charity, generosity. So. That's all oh, I got right. to say. Anything, yeah. Sarah, you've been watching anything or you got any recommendations for people? I meant to ask you guys at the beginning. Watching anything on Facebook? Television. Television. <laughs> I was like, what's my favorite clip I've seen of a cat riding a vacuum? <laughs> Um. Oh my gosh! What is the show? Oh, I'm the worst at this because we're about to play a guessing game in front of the audience. He was in Clueless. His name is Paul Rudd. Paul oh yes, Rudd's the show. ageless wonder, the ageless Paul. I have yes, I'm, I, the, the uh, it's the living with myself, living with, <gasps> and it's made by the people who did Little Miss Sunshine. And I've heard Tom Brady makes a cameo, and they because he is symbolic of perfection, which I I, I almost called you. <laughs> I mean, because it was the seculosity creed like all over. It is a, it. We're only in the second episode, and I am very excited about. This. I've heard it's there's. The I'm excited. You guys know who Tom Brady I've is. I've heard there's some stuff about only marriage in there you. that and, and the soulmate stuff that's unbelievable. So, well, yeah, the premise is that he goes into this spa that's allegedly gonna like make him younger and i mean like make him his best self and what they actually end up doing is just creating a clone of him and then they kill the original version but they didn't do it the right way and he woke up and so there's two versions of himself one that is like very handsome and enthusiastic and deeply empathetic towards his wife and the other one who's like you know y'all so (laughs) (laughs) it's so good Oh, Paul Rudd. He, I, he's sort of symbolic to me of a certain type of perfection. I love that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you guys uh, for talking and for uh, thank you for your generosity uh, with, with, with me. Um, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.